team, we so appreciate your ministry to us, helping us to worship. We're missing our youth, aren't we? They're coming back this afternoon. They're in our prayers. We're praying that they will have had a wonderful event together at their retreat this weekend. This Tuesday, I guess you're aware, November 1st is traditionally celebrated in the liturgical calendar as All Saints Day, Dia de Todos los Santos, which of course gives us the day before All Hallows Eve. Yeah, All Hallows Eve. Uh, the night before, or as it came to be called in a shortened form, Halloween. Yep. Before the full-scale invasion of American customs in Spain, November 1st was always a time of remembering your departed loved ones with a visit to the cemetery. That's just what you did. That's where you went. It was, in a way, a a time of rehashing your grief, your anguish over lost loved ones, even a time of calling to mind your own mortality, because a visit to the cemetery certainly does that for any of us, doesn't it? Do you ever go to a cemetery? It's a healthy experience, I think, to go there and realize, well, I guess this is where I am destined someday. We want to keep it as far off as possible, but we're all headed that way because we are all mourners at some point in life, if not multiple times in life, we may actually have to go through mourning. And you know, it's something that we actually have to learn how to do. We don't know automatically how to mourn. You have to go through it. And when you go through it, you have to pay attention and you have to work at it. Mm. Especially thinking about COVID and what some people had to go through in COVID where their loved ones were in the hospital, dying, isolated, and you couldn't go and be with them. And then you couldn't have a proper funeral. Ah, the frustrations that COVID produced for so many people, all of us, but for some people more than others. And now in wartime, think about our brothers and sisters, the Ukrainians, and Russians too. The Russians are not our enemies, are they? Uh, They're all just caught up in such a terrible situation that they can't get out of. And people are dying, and nobody's there to accompany them in their death or even to have a proper burial and mourning. It's really tragic. The Bible gives us us examples that show us that God understood this problem. God doesn't ignore any of our problems. Look at how the children of Israel grieved over Moses. Deuteronomy tells us, for 30 days, 
They just stopped. They did not progress. They did not go forward. They just stopped in their tracks to work on mourning and grieving over this great leader who had accompanied them, who had led them, who had taught them. They needed time to assimilate this tragic experience in their lives. Same thing for Aaron. Not too long before that, Numbers chapter 20, Aaron also, 30 days, they just stopped in their tracks and mourned. Does this tell us anything? It was the norm in Israel to do this. The community came together and expressed grief and sorrow and learned from each other. You see, it was institutionalized in terms of long-standing customs because God knew it takes time to assimilate our losses. It's not simple. But then there was the case of Miriam. What happened with Miriam? She didn't get mourned. Was it because she was a woman? No answer. <laughs> okay. I don't think it was because she was a woman. When you read it in context, you discover that the people of Israel were in a very difficult situation at that moment. They lacked water. They were in crisis. They were into grumbling mode against Moses at that particular point. They even provoked him to sin with their grumbling. Uh, they were wishing they had died with the rebels who were swallowed up by the earth. Wow, that was uh, pretty drastic. <laughs> if you had wished you had been swallowed up by the earth with them instead of Going through this, they were a bit unsettled, which maybe is a good part of the reason why they didn't get around to mourning for Miriam. Just tells us we have to learn what to do with our grief, how to handle it, how to process it. And it can be overwhelming sometimes. We have to take time. We have to stop. And of course, we need the Lord's help, don't we? Centuries ago, the prophet Isaiah spoke about the mourning that would literally overwhelm Israel due to the tragedy of her moral decline, her spiritual collapse. The psychological devastation would just be unimaginable. You know, I think our society today is very close to that same brink, so filled with the mourning of brokenness and confusion and, and desperation. I don't know if you notice it the same as I do, but I think it's just like an avalanche right now. You know, as an avalanche rolls down the mountainside, it just grows and grows and grows. I think that's what we're seeing in our society today. It's just getting worse and worse. So, our question this morning is, this afternoon, is, is there any hope for praise to be heard from the mourners' lips today? Can today's mourners be turned into praisers? <laughs> is there such a word in English? Can there be praise coming from their mouths today? This is the question we want to ask our text in Isaiah 57. The portion of the text that we begin with in verse 15 
says, this is what the high and exalted one says. The one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. Isaiah is very impressed with this high and exalted one who is really worthy of our worship. The only one worthy of our worship. And Isaiah hears him say, go, go on to say that he's the one who lives in a high and holy place, but at the same time with the lowly and contrite in spirit. Do you notice that contrast? Okay, take note of it. It's very important. Because he is the one who's going to create praise on the lips of the mourners. He's the one who's going to bring peace for those who are far and those who are near. This means in spite of Israel's terrible unfaithfulness, God is promising to turn their mourning into praise. He's going to bring them comfort and peace. All right, now you should be picking up on the irony here because mourners are not usually known for their words of praise or rejoicing, are they? No. Mourners, we automatically think of um, they're sad, they're depressed, they just don't know what to do with themselves. Yeah, that's the mourner. So you see there is a tension here that challenges our standard logic. We don't expect praise on the lips of mourners. Those two don't go together, right? All right, pick up on the irony then. And you have to understand here that the mourning that we're talking about is not just over the loss of loved ones. This is a larger mourning that we're dealing with here. Uh, it's maybe something like what Miguel de Unamuno expressed. You remember that uh, Spanish philosopher and poet and politician? A great guy. Wrote a book entitled El Sentido Trágico de la Vida. The Tragic Sense of Life. Well, he lived at a very tragic time in Spanish history, didn't he? So he especially felt the weight of the tragedy. In effect, that life itself is so tragic. There's so much tragedy going on all over the world, even now as we sit here comfortably in this quiet place with peace, apparently, all around us. Life is so tragic, so full of grief, so full of brokenness all over the world. So what Isaiah is prophesying here has to do with this great reversal that comes with the gospel, okay? Isaiah doesn't know the full implications of it, but the gospel of Jesus Christ is going to bring this tremendous reversal of the tragedy. That's why it's called good news, folks. The human tragedy can only be reversed by God. And he's going to accomplish it. He has promised. Let's think about that reversal. You know, it does characterize the gospel. It's all over the gospel. And you're aware of it, but let me just remind you a little bit about it. Remember how it says the first 
shall be last and the last shall be first. Oh, this is a great reversal. Or it also says, Paul says, God's strength is made perfect. Where? And weakness. Who can understand this? Strength, weakness. Well, it also says in the gospel, you have to lose your life in order to save it. And Paul also says that we have to carry the life of Jesus around in our mortal flesh. Sorry, we have to carry the death of Jesus around in our mortal flesh so that the life of Jesus can be manifested. Oh, wow, who can capture all of these paradoxes? It's of the essence of the gospel. And in effect, that means it's of the essence of reality. Have we tuned in to this? It's a tension. You can't capture it with Aristotelian logic. Eh? doesn't work that way. Because as a matter of fact, the kingdom that Jesus announces will not come about due to bigger weapons, more powerful armies. That's not how Jesus brought the kingdom, was it? The kingdom Jesus brings will not eliminate all the opposition just in a flash. No. Jesus said it's instead the kingdom will come more like a seed sower, a farmer, or like a fisherman casting his net. Oh, not very impressive, is it? Not very powerful just to sow some seeds, right? Yeah, this kingdom, who's it going to impress? Well, it is certainly a more gentle coming, isn't it, than what we expected of the kingdom of God. Gentle, not imposing, not obliging, not forcing, gently inviting. And of course, this is the process the true process of healing and comforting that God has promised that finds its culmination when God stretches out his arms and hands and is crucified to a cross, right? Yeah. yeah. The culmination is there so that by his wounds we are healed. Who can understand these paradoxes? You see, God delights in restoration and renewal, it's just that he doesn't do it the way we expected, right? Because Isaiah 55, our thoughts are not his thoughts. His ways are not our ways. It's, it's two different levels of reasoning there, and we need to tune in to his reasoning, don't we? So before we examine this amazing work that God was going to do and has done, we need to go back and remember more about this devastating situation that led to this state of mourning. What brought about this terrible state of mourning? That's what the first part of Isaiah 57 focuses on. Because the prophet, and by the way, you need to go back and read the whole chapter. Eh? We've just read a little portion of it. But if you really want to get the big picture here, you've got to read the whole chapter and we don't have time to do that this morning, this afternoon, so it's on you. <laughs> Go back and read the whole chapter of Isaiah 57. Get into it and let the Word of God get into you. You promise? Yeah, we'll try. We'll try, Pastor. 
read the word. You need it, all right? Okay, so the prophet, he wants to clarify the depth of this problem that we have. He wants to sound the depths of this problem that we have before he goes into the solution. And it is a very deep well. Yeah, a very deep well, the problem that you and I have, that humanity has. This problem that Isaiah says was manifested in the greed, the willful stubbornness, the inauthenticity, the falseness that characterized Israel's sinful human nature. Oh, don't think it was just Israel, right? So in this case, the mourners are not just grieving over lost loved ones. They're grieving over the loss of everything, their comfortable lifestyle, their favorite vices, <laughs> their easy access to anything that they set their sights on. But you see, as a result of these utterly misplaced values, they have actually lost everything. They are in total bankruptcy. That's how God describes our spiritual condition. Bankruptcy. Spiritual poverty. So Isaiah describes these people with some very uncomplimentary names and epithets. And I think this might be a little bit X-rated, so if anybody needs to tapar los oídos or just not look, uh, it gets pretty grim when he starts describing what the people are really like. Here in Isaiah 57, he calls them, you children of a sorceress, you offspring of adulterers and prostitutes, you brood of rebels, you offspring of liars. Wow. He's really being fierce here, isn't he? You see that? Mm. Who's he talking about? God's people. Oh, how terrible. God's people? He's describing them like this? I mean, we would have expected something better of God's people, wouldn't we? Yeah, but don't miss it. The first level of reference is to, to the people of Israel, but the secondary reference is to humanity in general. We have all fallen into this pit that we can't get out of on our own. In fact, he goes on to suggest how ultimately all of us join in the mocking, the sneering, the sticking out of the tongue. Ooh, sounds like bullying to me, wouldn't you say? Yeah, that's what they were doing. They may not have called it that back then, but today we recognize, hey, that's bullying. Well, if that's what they were doing back then, that's certainly what happens today, isn't it? All too often, eh, Oh, that's certainly ugly. That's what we are on the inside. And the next verse, chapter 5, goes on to describe another very serious problem. It says they were burning with lust. Oh, well, that's not us. Oh, that's somebody else. Let's stop and talk about that for a moment. You know, 
today's porn industry. The COVID lockdown conditions were so beneficial to <clears throat> the media and the entertainment sector. Online porn received this huge upsurge in the number of users and subscribers during the lockdown period. So now porn is mainstream entertainment. In 2019, it brought in $35 billion in revenues. Can you wrap your mind around that? And during COVID, there was a 15% growth every year, which means by this year, it's over 50 billion a year that they are raking in through online porn. Wow. The market for the adult porno websites industry in the United States is increasing faster than the technology sector. Wow. It's bigger than Netflix. Are you serious? Yep. Netflix can't even keep up with pornography in popularity. So what does this tell us about the state of humanity? And the trends say that there's a growing number of female users. Aha. Uh -huh. This used to be a man's sport, right? <laughs> Men only. No, no. Now more and more women are also indulging in the sport. The U.S. is the biggest market for the moment, but don't miss it. Asian Pacific region is exploding, moving up. Can you imagine what the day of highest internet porn traffic is? Which day of the week? Highest porn traffic on the internet. Sunday. Didn't you imagine it? Yeah, the devil likes for his people to worship on Sunday as well because that way he can, eh, nah, 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 nah. you know, that's what he's doing as he gets his people online to worship him. You follow me? According to a nationally representative survey of the United States, teenagers, 84% of 14 to 18-year-old males and 57% of 14 to 18-year-old females have viewed or view regularly pornography. 14 to 18 years old. Uh, that's a lot of underage exposure to an industry that claims to be adult entertainment? Oh, I think they are reaching more than adults. Hmm. Pornography's harmful effects are not a mystery. The science and research have really been available for years. Thousands of people, including porn performers themselves, have spoken out on how porn negatively impacts their lives and their relationships. It fuels loneliness. It fuels aggressive behaviors. It fuels low self-esteem. It fuels mental health issues. Yeah. And yet, recently, a New York politician, coming from the U.S., what did we expect? A, a, a New York 
politician did a short film of himself indulging with prostitutes as part of his sex-positive political campaign. To get re-elected for office, he did this. <clears throat> Naturally appealing on behalf of sex workers, trying to help them get Social Security and all their rights, all that sort of thing. What kind of world are we living in? Have you thought about it lately? It's really awful. It's terrible. That means our society, just as surely as that ancient society, is pursuing idolatry in the form of every possible selfish pleasure and self-indulgence imaginable. Totally accurate description of today's world. <clears throat> Going back to verse 5. Even to the point of sacrificing children. Yes, they practiced that. And we look back and say, oh, how primitive, how savage they were. Mm, taking their unwanted babies and discarded them, discarding them. Yeah, they could even do it religiously. <laughs> it was part of a religious ceremony to get rid of them. Today, they haven't thought of that yet, have they? You just get rid of them. Wow. What Isaiah was doing here was he was giving us a spoiler about what was to come. Painting this horrid but realistic portrait of utter depravity and wretchedness that represents the state of humanity back then and today. We got it? <clears throat> so all the mourning that was taking place was with good reason. There was a lot to mourn about. They mourned over wasted potential, broken homes and families, shattered hopes, destroyed lives. You see, we languish from our frenzied search for satisfaction among things that do not fulfill. And they are the very things that actually ravage our souls with corruption and shame even as we pursue them. <clears throat> But here's the killer. We've actually all had a hand in this human tragedy, either through active participation or passive neglect. We're all in that same boat. There we are. Maybe you're shocked to have to be lumped together in this general condemnation with all the riffraff of humanity. But you know, there is a collective dimension to salvation as well. Because we are called to love our neighbor wherever that neighbor is found. And when we turn a blind eye to our neighbor in need, <clears throat> we got a problem. We're all in this boat together, this human boat. Do we realize it? With all the failings, with all the good points, that's us. In that ship. Okay, somebody may protest. Yeah, but we're not really all that bad. Well, maybe you haven't done such and such and that over there, but what about this and the other? How does any of us get off the hook? Maybe our problem is we haven't reviewed our history lessons lately to help us remember Humanity's consistently bellicose nature, self-centered focus. 
It's not exceptional. It's the rule. Or maybe we've swept our own battles and temptations and failures under the rug. You see, Scripture's verdict is unflinching. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're all in, in this together. Goes on to say, there is none righteous, not even one. Nope. And the human heart spews forth evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, folly. And Jesus probably could have kept going. That was his take on our true condition. The great physician, you know, that was his readout on our heart, yours and mine. <clears throat> and since his times, we've only taught ourselves to do all those kinds of things at a higher speed and with greater efficiency. That's still who we are as a race. In fact, Jeremiah the prophet had already warned six centuries before Christ that the human heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Jeremiah already understood it way back there in the Old Testament. And few have expressed the extent of this damage like the prophet Isaiah. It was damage to God's crowning creation. And what was that? It's you and I. We were God's crowning creation. Damage to God's crowning creation and damage through God's crowning creation. You've heard the old saying, hurt people hurt people. You get it? Those who have been hurt pass it on again and again. There's a lot to mourn over, isn't there? And you say, well, Pastor, are you only going to paint this ugly, horrible picture? Or are we going to get around to some hope? Don't worry. <clears throat> this very same chapter where he paints everything so dark is where we get the light as well. Isaiah 57 is one of those deep pits of human depravity and sorrow that Isaiah is looking down into. But in the midst of all that darkness... The most amazing truth comes forth in this prophetic message. And it is that the high and exalted one should care a whit about such wretched creatures as we are. After all his merciful and provision, provision and patience and warnings, they persisted in their selfish ways. And yet this holy God is still full of compassion. For whom? For the contrite and lowly in spirit. Is that you? Ask yourself this question. Don't fail to apply this to you. That's what we're supposed to do with God's Word. Apply it to myself. Am I that lowly and contrite of heart? God's wanting to have compassion on me so that He can revive our hearts. That's God's longing. Do you see it? Do you feel it? In fact, God knew that he just, if he just kept accusing and informing us about how sinful we were, he said the spirit of man would faint before him. We couldn't handle it. We couldn't bear the weight of grasping the full picture of our iniquity and foolishness. So God stops short. <laughs> Even though he was justified in everything he said, 
he stopped. He knew that he would have to take drastic action in order to bring about a serious change, in order to rescue us. So he says, I've seen their ways. He knows us. But he says, I will heal them. It doesn't matter to me. Well, it does matter, but I'm not going to hold it against them. I love them. I want them to be rescued. I will heal them. It's what God promises. You know, we need to let those words wash over our soul. He knows exactly what you're like right down to your toes. He knows. That's why he's called the cardiognostes in the Bible, which means heart knower. He's done the x-ray. He knows the, the resonancia magnetica on your heart, on your whole life. He knows what's there. And this is what he wants to do. To heal. Hear it. Apply it to you. Let his longing for you soak in deep. He says, I will guide them. I will restore comfort to them. In other words, this is a work of pure grace, unimaginable power that could only come from God. It's nothing short of a miracle. So what is this work, this great work that God wants to do that will produce this revolutionary recovery in all those who are mourning over their failures and their losses and the tragedy of life? What is it? Well, the suffering servant is not clearly present in chapter 57 of Isaiah, but he is the principal theme of the preceding messages in the book of Isaiah. So his shadow is still here. In fact, this suffering servant is exactly the one who would endure all this rebellion and meanness of these people. He would experience it personally in his face, as we say. The betrayal, the injustice, the false witnesses, the mocking, the bullying, the beating, the raging. He would bear all those iniquities against him with kindness and grace. Pouring out his life unto death. Being numbered among the transgressors, says Isaiah 53. You see, the apostle Paul sees that Jesus' death is clearly the fulfillment of the announcement that Isaiah made in 57:19. Peace, peace, that's shalom in the Hebrew, which means complete well-being to those far away and to those near, says the Lord, and I will heal them. In Ephesians, Paul sees that what Isaiah was talking about was Jesus. He is our peace, Paul says. He's the one who came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. Of course, the ones far away, it's talking about the Gentile nations. They were far from God. To those who were near, that's talking about the Jewish nation because they had God's revelation. And now both, those who were far away and those who were near, find their equal access to God through Jesus by the one Spirit just as they find their peace with God and peace with one another through Jesus Christ. Because he's the only one powerful enough to 
overcome such enmity as there was between Jews and Gentiles. It was terrible. It was fierce. This again is to be applied to us. If Jesus was the only one who could overcome the enmity between Jews and Gentiles who were such bitter enemies, then he's the only one who can overcome the enmity between Russia and the Ukraine or you name it, around the world. All the places where they're knocking heads or the enmity between your boss and you or between a fellow worker and you or between a neighbor and you he's the one who can overcome that enmity or between spouses oh but that doesn't happen to people at church hmm whom are you kidding or between brothers and sisters in Christ Oh, in God's family, we don't have those kind of problems. Whom are you kidding? He's the one who overcomes the enmity. We have to turn to Him in order to have our swords beat into plowshares. Yes? Amen. I'll say it myself if you won't. <laughs> because the redemption that Jesus enfleshed in His sacrifice was the only event large enough to bring true peace to those far and to those near. It's the only event large enough. And what Jesus was offering there in his redemption, in his sacrifice, was the same peace that he offered his disciples on the night of his betrayal. Remember there in the upper room where he said, my peace, I leave you. Not like the world. This is a different kind of peace. He talked to them about peace. He talked about, to them about his joy that was overflowing that he wanted them to have as he was facing the cross. Wow, how could he talk about peace and joy in the face of the suffering that was about to come upon him? Because his joy and his peace are greater than any suffering we ever have to go through. Do you believe that? You have to think about it a minute, huh? All right, so, so where does that peace happen? Where do we access that kind of peace? Think about it with me. Don't go to sleep yet, all right? That peace is available in Jesus, in the forgiveness that he declared and acted out at the cross. He spoke it with his mouth and he acted it out with his flesh. He humanized his forgiveness before it was divine forgiveness. Now it was really human forgiveness too. He contemporized it. He made it contemporary with us. He historicized it. He materialized it so that it was part of our human reality, accessible to us where we need it. Does that make sense? So it is both reconciliation with God and man. Reconciliation that was accomplished by his forgiving. That he incarnated right there on the cross. And it's also liberation from sin, from death, from the evil one. And that was accomplished by his 
conquering. Do you get the irony? Wait a minute. You're telling me as he was hanging there dying, he was conquering? Yes. Yes. If you've not thought about this before, think about it now by all means. Because what was he doing? He was loving God with all his being under the worst circumstances possible. Can you do that? He did it. By resisting the evil one. He refused to give in to the evil one. He kept on loving his father perfectly. Even as he was dying. As he was agonizing there on that cross. And he kept on loving his fellow man. Us. Even his enemies. In spite of all our rebellion. And ugliness. He kept loving us. To the last drop of his blood. Incarnating divine mercy. And he was doing all of that at the same time. You see, these are the two dimensions of our spiritual need. Are you grasping it? Please grasp it with your whole heart and mind. The restoration of our friendship with God and victory over the enemy of our souls. And it was all perfected with that one act of pouring out his soul unto death. In the face of all our hostility, forgiving us and defeating our enemy both at the same time. Such a peace as he brought about there is so powerful that even mourners cannot resist it if they truly capture it and are captured by it. They're going to break forth in praise, and you will too. And then they are themselves turned into peacemakers following in Christ's footsteps. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing, the psalmist says. You have removed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness so that my heart may praise you and not be silent. Oh, Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. That's the praise that substitutes our mourning. Will you lay your mourning over life's disillusionments at the foot of the cross? Will you let Jesus soothe and calm your anxiety and your sorrow with his praises? He is worthy of your praise even in the midst of of your difficulty. Even in the midst of your sorrow and your trial, he is worthy. And there is power in praising him. Will you take this moment to praise him? Whatever your circumstances, in spite of your difficulties, your pains, your anguish, Take time to praise his name and you will feel his hand comforting, strengthening, providing light and wisdom. Will you praise him with me right now? Oh, blessed Savior, we call on your name. Thank you for bringing your redemption so close, so near to us so that all we need do is 
call on your name and you are there, you are here with us to comfort, to rescue, to save. Holy Lord Jesus, we acknowledge that we have made a tragedy of your world. We've made a mess of our own lives many times. You are the only one who can provide the solution. So we look to you, Lord Jesus, from the depths of our well. We look to you and we praise your name for you are worthy. You have accomplished what none of us could ever do. In the midst of your tragedy and sorrow, you kept being faithful and you offered us your victory, your forgiveness. Blessed Lord Jesus, we praise your name today. We ask that you will be Lord over all our circumstances and you will create praise on our lips, in our hearts, in our lives, so that you are glorified even in the midst of our adversity and difficulties. Lord Jesus, be exalted. We pray it in your name.